Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We are 10 years out from the fall of Lehman Brothers and the worst financial crisis in the lifetime of most of you that are listening to this. But what are we actually marking? And more importantly, what have we really learned? So much of the debate to this very day as to what caused the crash and the bursting of the housing bubble is so caught up in political rhetoric, confirmation bias, and rear-end covering that it's still hard to tell. Perhaps we don't have to go as far as Chow Enlai's answer to Nixon's question about the impact of the French Revolution when he said that even after 200 years, it's too soon to know. But certainly after 10 years, we know more than we did then, and perhaps it's time to ask some more pointed questions. And to try and put all of this in some kind of perspective, I am joined by Sebastian Malaby. He's the Paul A. Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a longtime journalist and public speaker and a contributing columnist for The Washington Post, where he previously served as a staff columnist and editorial board member. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, and his writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Economist, and The Financial Times. His recent article in The Washington Post was the dangerous myth we still believe about the Lehman Brothers bust. It is my pleasure to welcome Sebastian Malaby to the program. Sebastian, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, great to be with you. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about what, to this day, the common understanding is as to really the forces that caused the crash to happen. Well, you know, my perspective on this is very much colored by having spent five years researching a biography of Adam Greenspan. And as I was doing this, and then even as I finished it, and people would come up and say, well, Greenspan, he was the laissez-faire guy, the free market guy, who basically caused the crisis because he thought that markets were efficient so they couldn't go wrong, so then he didn't regulate anything. And what's interesting about that view is that it's simply not true. And when you actually look at uh, what Greenspan's views were through his life. He thought the markets were very inefficient, and that's why he tried to make money by day trading when he was younger. He bought himself a seat on the New York Commodity Exchange to do that. So he didn't think that markets were efficient. And actually, when he was at the Fed, although he had had a, a sort of period of anti-regulation uh, much earlier um, in the 60s, he actually went along with the kind of consensus when the general counsel of Fed said well, they should be regulating something. He basically would support it. Uh, and so I think there is a myth out there which says, you know, we had this crisis because naive believers in the self-policing magic of efficient markets, you know, thought we didn't have to regulate. And, and that simply was not what I found in, in doing the research for my book. One of the things that Greenspan certainly believed, and, and you've written about this, and, and, and others have talked about it, the idea that he certainly did believe in bubbles and crashes and ups and downs in the market, in many ways counter to this idea of, of the efficiency of the markets. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the almost sort of terrifying things is that if you had had to choose a Fed chairman uh, who was sensitized to, to bubbles and to the destabilizing effects of bubbles, you might have chosen Alan Greenspan as the person most likely to protect us because his PhD thesis was obsessed with the effect of the 1929 bubble. Uh, for his consulting clients, 
he had written repeatedly about financial busts from Penn Central in 1970, uh, you know, all through to continental Illinois in 1984, and and so on and so forth. So he was very much steeped in the instability of markets. He talked about irrational exuberance when he was Fed chairman. And yet, despite having somebody who was kind of fixated on financial instability, what we got was terrible financial instability. I mean, he didn't prevent the 2000 bubble in the tech stocks, and he didn't prevent uh, the housing bubble that built up on his watch before he left the Fed in January of 2006. So, you know, he failed twice over on bubbles, even though he was obsessed with preventing bubbles. And I think that should give us pause about, you know, how easy it might be to stop the next crisis. One of the things that it also did, and you talk about this in your Washington Post piece, is that it kind of gave rise and gave a whole new impetus to this discussion about behavioral economics. Talk about that. Yes, I mean, the idea that people are not rational, but in fact they make irrational decisions almost on a systematic basis is what behavioral economics has studied. And it's come up with very interesting insights about the way that, for example, you know, people don't save enough for their retirement. And you can affect that mistake that people are making um, by having default enrollment in 401k so that you have to actively opt out uh, if you don't want to save. And so little nudges like that can make a difference. So I'm a fan of behavioral economics. But what happened after the crisis was that two of the original behavioral economists, uh, Richard Taylor, who is particularly well-known for behavioral uh, finance, and then uh, Daniel Kahneman, who had done some of the original work on overall behavioral economics, not just finance, but broader. They both wrote wrote best-selling books. And I think the kind of discussion around those books was very much along the lines of, oh, well, if we'd understood that people behave badly and that they're not rational, well, then we wouldn't have been surprised by the 2008 crisis. And that's where I think a misunderstanding has been allowed to take root. And, of course, a lot of that was further popularized by Michael Lewis. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Michael Lewis is a magical storyteller, and whatever he puts his hand to, he makes it so compelling and enjoyable that you're, you know, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to drink it up. <laughs> And he sort of did this, you know, both with the big short, uh, his book about uh, shorting the subprime bubble, uh, and then more recently with his book, the, uh, um, uh, which was about the two founders of behavioral uh, economics, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, and their relationship and how they did the first behavioral experiment. So he's been, uh, I think, you know, he's written fantastic stuff, but the uh, unfortunate side effect is that people are more interested in behavioral economics, and that's fine, but it's not fine if you think that's why there was a crisis. But the relevance of that, I suppose, and and you go to the heart of it in talking about the storytelling aspect of it, is that there has never been a a prevailing counter-narrative that people have been able to tell. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we, we do need to kind of sum it up for people uh, in, in one idea. Um, and that is difficult. There's, there's no getting around it because there were, you know, it was a complicated crisis. But I think, 
and, 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 and you, can, you can say some things which are true but sort of defeatist. So you can say, well, capitalism always has crises. Uh, well, if that's the case, there ain't much you can do, and it's kind of a council of despair. Um, you can say that long periods of stability breed complacency and therefore instability. Again, I think that doesn't get you very far in terms of prescriptive advice for how to prevent the next one. I um, tend to emphasize the way that um, political dysfunction in Congress um, made it very difficult to do rational regulation, even when supposedly anti-regulation people like Greenspan was calling for regulation of both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two big government housing uh, lenders. Um, you know, when, when Greenspan tried to push for that, he got rolled politically by the lobbies on the other side. Uh, so I think that sort of political explanation for why we had a crisis gets you quite a long way to understanding where we went wrong and what we should avoid next time. What did Greenspan understand back in 2001 when he tried to reel in some of the subprime excesses at that point? Well, you know, subprime mortgages had been around in the 90s, but they were viewed as um, either innocuous or actually positively good because, you know, there were people who didn't have good credit but um, could plausibly make an argument that they still deserved a mortgage and that they would, uh, you know, uh, if they paid a slightly higher interest rate to compensate for the risk, which they represented, there was nothing wrong with them trying to buy a house. But as the uh, practice of lending to on a subprime basis, you know, spread, um, there were more and more abuses baked into the lending products. And in particular, there were things which obviously looked as if they were generating fees for the banks that made the loans. They were taking advantage of the fact that the customer wouldn't read all the fine print and wouldn't understand, for example, that a teaser rate on a mortgage, which looked very attractive for the first year, would uh, jump upwards um, after the year was up, and it would be difficult for the uh, borrower to afford the payments after that. So there were these abuses which the Fed had been studying, uh, and um, after some internal debate, Greenspan supported the policy of promulgating new standards for subprime mortgages, which the Fed staff at the time calculated would rule out the riskiest one-third of subprime mortgages. Now, what happened later was that the Fed staff did a retrospective study and found that rather than preventing one-third, it prevented 1% uh, of the bad mortgages. And the reason was that although the Fed could write down rules about mortgage standards, the actual business of originating these mortgages was done by non-banks that the Fed did not itself regulate. And instead, uh, the Federal uh, Trade Commission had authority over some of these non-banks. And the Federal Trade Commission is a sort of enforcement agency, you know, if there's a complaint, it will look into it. It does not proactively supervise lenders to get, you know, to get at their bad practices ahead of time. So that's just one example of the way that Greenspan had the right instinct, but for political reasons and because of the balkanization of American regulation, um, his instincts 
didn't really achieve much on the ground. What is your sense of how much that balkanization of regulation really played into this? How much was that a part of it, do you think? I think that it also played a role uh, definitely in the failure to rein in bad mortgages. It also played a role in the failure to get more capital into the banking system. When Timothy Geithner became president of the New York Fed, um, I think it was the start of 2004, he decided that he ought to push the banks to hold more capital because he was extremely sensitive to the possibility of a financial meltdown. He'd been at the Treasury in the 90s. He'd presided over the U.S. response to the emerging market crises in Asia. So he knew a thing or two about crises. And when he looked at what was going on in American finance, he thought we were not immune. And so he wanted to do something about it. But what he found was he could get the banks, which were supervised by him and by the Fed, to hold more capital because he had the authority to do that. But if he did that, then risk-taking would simply migrate to other lenders that were not under the Fed's authority. And so it would just squeeze the, the balloon and the air would go someplace else. And I, so that's another example where the balkanization of regulation um, allowed for what we call regulatory arbitrage, where you know financial service providers could simply uh, do an end run around the rules by moving to whichever part of the system was regulated by the weakest regulator. And how do Fannie and Freddie fall into to this discussion? Well, Fannie and Freddie, um, you know, were absolutely enormous um, and getting bigger in the 2000s. And their sheer size um, suggested that, you know, if they had a problem, it would be a humongous issue for the whole financial system. Um, it seemed quite likely that they were lending uh, without much regard to safety because they sort of understood that the government would have to bail them out if something went wrong. And you could see that in the price of their debt when they issued it in the bond market. They were charged a pretty low interest rate because the lenders assumed that the loans were, you know, you could lend to Fannie and Freddie pretty much risk-free because the Uncle Sam was standing behind them. And, and Greenspan could see all this uh, in the 2000s, and he went and he, you know, he made a bit of an alliance with reformers in the White House at the time, and he went and testified in Congress and urged that a more serious regulator be put in charge of overseeing Fannie and Freddie, and that they should actually have caps on their size um, because they were simply getting too big. And if people seem to be listening. If you look at the transcript of the first time Greenspan testified, you know he was viewed as the maestro, and he had this special magical effect on people in Washington D.C. So he he stood a chance of getting his reform adopted. But then uh, Fannie Mae ran a TV ad, which essentially was a shot across the bow, saying to people in Congress, "If you back the Greenspan plan, expect us to come after you in your district with TV ads." And magically, of course, all the support for the Greenspan plan melted away uh, under the impact of that threat. So I think, again, this is an example of the way that political constraints undermined the instinct to try to rein in risk. And if we really want to prevent the next crisis, we have to be 
attuned to that and understand that we need to be proactively on the lookout for financial lobbies that are trying to loosen the rules. What is the greatest danger from continuing along this current mythology that we talked about at the outset, that it was simply the, the inefficiency of markets that was responsible for the crash? Well, I think if, if you have that view, you sort of assume that if you replace the old authorities with new individuals who acknowledge that markets are inefficient, then you've gone a long way to solving the problem. And I think that's a mistake because actually the people in charge before the crisis did understand that markets could go wrong, could have bubbles. And yet, you know, that wasn't enough to prevent the crisis. So I think it sort of distracts people's attention from the need to actually focus on the details and look at whether um, there are ways in which too much dangerous lending is taking place because a regulation that ought to be tightened up has been loosened uh, by by dint of, of lobbying. So I think it it takes kind of a, a real watchdog mentality, which will you know, which is difficult because it's very detailed. This financial regulation and 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 the impetus for that is weakened if we mistakenly assume that. The problem behind the crisis was a belief in efficient markets. And as we look at the situation today, are there other warning signs out there that others like Greenspan did before 2008? Are there warning signs that others seem to be seeing or indicating? Well, I mean, right now we're in an environment where pretty much all asset prices, whether we're talking about real estate or stocks in the equity market or for that matter, bonds, they're all very highly priced. And I mean, you know, whether it's a bubble and whether they're going to collapse is always impossible to be sure about. But what we can say is that relative to historical prices, they are very highly valued. And therefore, there is a risk that there could be a fall someplace that would then trigger um, a bunch of problems and, and, and so on. So I think you know, we should be attuned to that. And one thing uh, particularly we should be attuned to is that the quality of corporate bonds has deteriorated quite a bit. If you look at um, investment-grade bonds, the share, which are rated triple B, which is the lowest rating you can have and still be viewed as an investment-rate bond, uh, that share of triple B is, is at a sort of historic high. And the same is true within the junk bond segment. The worst junk bonds, the junkiest junk bonds, uh, are a big share of the total outstanding. So I think that means that there's a case for saying, look, there could be a shock. People could lose money on these things. So we want the lending system, not just the banks, but the non-banks, to be extra cautious. And one thing the Fed could do in this sort of situation is, is push banks to hold extra capital, uh, so-called sort of uh, counter-cyclical capital requirements. Um, and, you know, that's something which people have discussed a bit, but there's no real sign that it's going to be adopted. So I think that's, that's where one should get a bit concerned that, that, you know, there's a case for doing this and yet it's not being done. And in fact, there's been pushback to that very idea from, from many lobbyists. 
Yes, right. I mean, while we're discussing the need for extra capital in the banking system and the lenders, um, actually the direction of travel is the opposite. There's there's talk um, from the Trump administration of undoing aspects of Dodd-Frank, the the post-2008 regulation. And so, yes, that's another cause for concern, absolutely. Are policymakers able to move as fast in this framework of of bureaucracy and balkanization that we talked about before? Are they able to move as fast as necessary, given how fast the markets move today? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's actually a a big source of concern that one of the things the post-2008 reform did was to take away um, some of the discretion the Fed used to have about doing a bailout for a particular company. So there are certain types of intervention that worked in late 2008, early 2009, which would now be uh, against the rules. Now, you could probably change those rules by going to Congress and getting emergency legislation, but to your point, that would take time, and you don't normally have much time when markets are moving very, very fast and there are kind of electronic bank runs going on. And and so I think that that is a worry. And one useful change to the post-2008 legislation would be to restore uh, some of the discretion that the Fed used to have. I I do think there's a contrast between um, the way in which the European uh, economies recovered slowly after their crisis um, in the U.S., the recovery came rather faster. And I think that's partly because European authorities were unable to move fast enough because of various constraints on how they could act. And there, was, there were less constraints in the U.S., so we had a faster recovery. One of the things we hear all the time, particularly as it refers to the military, is that generals are always fighting the current war based upon lessons from the last one, and sometimes those lessons don't have a whole lot of value. Talk about that idea in the context of what we're looking at today in the financial world. Yes, I mean, people do say that, and and I think it's actually very true that no one financial crisis is exactly like the last one because people are always expecting the same problem again, and so therefore it doesn't happen because they're on guard. Um, So, you know, if we have another crisis, I I assume it will not be, um, you know, that um, broker-dealers like Lehman Brothers uh, are suddenly holding tons of um, mortgage paper. Um, It'll be something different. Now, what could it be? You know, one thing people point to sometimes is that there's been a really fast uh, and dangerous growth in uh, lending for uh, student debt. Um, and I do think it's true that a lot of this debt won't be very easy to repay, and it's exploded in quantity. But I don't think it's big enough in aggregate to be a systemic financial problem. I think it's more of a bad social problem. It's going to mean that lots of graduating students are encumbered with this debt that will constrain their consumption. So I think that's a social and political issue, probably not a financial system issue. I think the biggest, you know, if we don't go to emerging markets for the moment where you've seen 
problems in Turkey and Argentina recently. But if we keep the discussion for now just to the U.S., I think the the asset class that looks the most dangerous is is corporate debt uh, because of the deterioration in the quality of the credit that I was talking about earlier. Sebastian Malaby, his article, The Dangerous Myth We Still Believe About the Lehman Brothers Bust, appears in the September 9th Washington Post. Sebastian, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you.